When I was a teenager, uh, the taking up of the offering at church was met with more than its usual sense of anxiety. The reason is that in the Sunday evening service, it was the job of the teenagers to collect the offering, so we'd all come in the various aisles up the, to the front of the church with our offering plates, and the, the pastor had the habit of spontaneously asking one of the teenagers to come up to the pulpit to pray for, over the offering. <clears throat> and so you can imagine there was a big fight in the foyer over anxiety over who's going to have to pray for the offering. It was soon discovered that if you were on the outside aisles, the pastor never called on you. But if you were one of the two fellows who was coming down the center aisle, you were going to get called upon. And so, in the foyer, there was a huge, I mean, sometimes a wrestling match over who would get the outside aisles, right? It was met with great anxiety. And whenever we talk about giving in the church, it's met with some degree of anxiety, right? Paul is coming to a close in this letter of 1 Corinthians. And here in chapter 16, he's going to talk about some practical matters. After talking about this great glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the body, now he's going to talk about some practical matters related to an offering that he is uh, organizing and the planning of his life and ministry. These are important things because they help us, give us principles for how we can organize our giving and organize our time and strategy about how we live our lives. So we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. We're going to be looking at the importance of giving and planning. It is our habit to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I'd like to ask if we could stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. And by the way, one thing that's kind of beautiful is that we're here in the gym because we're renovating our uh, worship center, and the sound of your standing and sitting is really sweet here in the gym. I just want you to know coming back to me, so that's kind of sweet. Let's hear the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits." But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you, with the other brothers, 
but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Please have a seat. Some very practical kind of nuts and bolts sorts of things here in this section of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look first at the opportunity we have to give to the Lord's work. And it requires both generosity and accountability. Paul begins by saying, now concerning. And those of you who have been with us in this series in 1 Corinthians will know that that phrase, now concerning, means that the Corinthians had asked Paul a question about that matter, and now Paul is writing, giving his answer regarding the question. So in chapter 7, verse 1, you had this question about marriage, and Paul is giving an answer. In chapter 7, verse 5, he's asking about, they're, they're asking about the betrothed and marriage. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, they've asked about food that's been offered to idols, and Paul gives his response. In chapter 12, verse 1, he talk, they're, they're asking about spiritual gifts, and Paul gives his answer. Here in chapter 16, verse 1, they have apparently asked about this collection for the saints, and Paul is going to give his answer. In chapter 16, verse 12, we'll see at the very end of our passage today, they've asked about Apollos, and Paul's going to give his answer. Now, the occasion for the writing about this collection for the saints is that there had been a famine over the whole Mediterranean area that had hit Judea and the Jerusalem church particularly hard. These saints were suffering. And as a result, one of Paul's missions, even before he went on any missionary journeys, was to seek to provide relief for those believers in the Jerusalem and Judean church. Uh, and then, all along his ministry, because this, the effects of this famine continued among the saints at Jerusalem, Paul had a desire to be able to collect up money from other places, other believers in other churches, in order to assist and help the saints at Jerusalem. That's the context in which we're uh, reading this now concerning the collection for the saints. Listen to Acts chapter 11. This is before Paul ever went on any missionary journeys to get some of the context here. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and that's where Paul was, uh, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders, the elders in Jerusalem, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Saul's name hadn't been changed yet to Paul. And here he was, even before he ever went on a missionary journey, seeking to help provide relief for this church in Jerusalem. Now, this wasn't a need that was continual. It was something that went on for a while, but it wasn't something that was going to go on forever. As such, when we look at verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians 16, this is not providing 
instructions about the regular giving to a church. Some people have looked at it that way, like this is how regular giving to a church should take place. And I do think there are some principles that apply, but that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is the idea of one church seeking to help another church far away with the needs that they have as a result of a famine. This collection then, verse 1, concerning the collection. It's not the weekly offering for the functioning of the church. It's a giving plan to meet an emergency need. Now, Paul describes this taking up of an offering at a variety of the letters that he writes. He doesn't just talk to the Corinthians about it. Um, And some of the words that he uses to describe this collection help us understand about the joy of giving. Consider the words that Paul uses all through his writings about this particular taking up of this offering. Here it's called a collection, but other words that are used are fellowship, service, grace, blessing, divine service. Isn't that beautiful? So that at the end of his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 24 verse 17, Paul is giving his testimony as he has been arrested. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So not only did he present these present offerings to the church at Jerusalem before he ever became a missionary, one of his last acts before he was arrested was to present yet another offering, this offering that he's describing here in chapter 16. In Romans chapter 15, verse 25, we read, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia was the province that Corinth was located in, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, what are some general principles that we can learn about giving from these four verses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16? Notice it says, each of you. Giving should be planned by each person. And I would encourage families to think about this, that it would be very helpful very early on with your children to teach them about the joy and the privilege of giving. Let each of you, it doesn't mean that we just say, well, giving is for some people and not for others, but rather it ought to be something that every believer considers. Notice, let each of you, each of you is to put something aside This idea of setting something aside. Listen, if we don't plan our giving, we will fail to give. We will always end up with something that we spend our money on. And so Paul's principle here, I think, is a very helpful one to plan to give, set it aside so that it won't be used anywhere else that it may then be stored up by the church as, the church as as people give the gifts. Notice it's as he may prosper. So giving is proportional. 
In other words, there are some people who can give more than others. And it's really something that each person needs to prayerfully consider in their heart before the Lord. Lord, what is it you would have me to do? And then notice that it's also according to the church plan and budget. The idea is that every, according to this giving plan for this collection to, for famine relief, is that people would give each week and that the church stores it up according to the church's plan and budget. And then there would be a time when Paul says they would take all of those gifts together and take it to the church at Jerusalem. The church stores it up by plan and budget. Sometimes we, um, <clears throat> when we read the Bible, we're looking for what's there. It's also helpful to look for what's not there. Look at what's not there in verses 1 to 4. There's nothing hurried about what they do. Even though there is an urgency, it's not hurried. Notice that it is not disorganized. Uh, they just, we don't know what we're doing, but we're just going to go do something. Notice that it is giving to an emergency that they already know is a need. So there has been some communication. But also note the lack of pressure, the lack of gimmicks, the lack of emotion associated here. So often when giving is thought about, particularly as it relates to uh, giving to the Lord's work, all of those things can take place. And we need to be careful to avoid them. Notice also that what's absent is somehow some implied promise that if you give, you will get. And that's what's called the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you give something, you will get more and more. Do you notice that that's not there in this text? There isn't any of that. Because that's not true. Our giving will, as Jesus promised in the scripture we read earlier, will bless us, but not necessarily in all the things that we're looking for, if we're looking for some material gain. Notice then also, that it says in verse 2, and I, admit I skipped over this to get to it here, on the first day of every week. Now, this is not a description of how all giving must happen. This is particularly about this relief offering for the Jerusalem church. But I think there's something helpful to think about this idea of the first day of the week in that Paul is reminding us of the resurrection. He's causing us to think about all the things that we looked at in, verse, in chapter 15. The first day of the week, that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And so it's out of a celebration of what Jesus has done for us and a celebration of what he's going to do for us in causing us to have resurrection bodies that here and now we celebrate on the first day of the week. This is the day of the week of Christian worship. It's also, though, a nod to our Jewish roots because the only way we know what is first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh days of the week is by the days of creation, which is a Jewish calendar, right? So we have a little bit of a nod to our Jewish notation here. The point is, 
that we are honoring the Lord in our worship on the first day of the week. Now, verses 3 and 4, giving should always be accounted for properly. He says, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, I'm not just going to take the money and go. You send a letter uh, and of introduction to people who are approved, and they will take the gift to Jerusalem. This does two things. One is, in that era in the Mediterranean, there were lots of thieves and robbers, right? So if you have a pretty large gift, what are you going to do? You need some security, right? Secondly, you also need accountability so that somehow by the time it gets to Jerusalem, it's a, a very small proportion of what was actually given. And so, letters of introduction, men who are approved, if advisable, Paul says, I myself will go. Now, it ended up, Paul's plans here, being a little bit of a mess because the Corinthian church was very happy to begin the giving, but according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, after starting well in this regular plan of giving so that they would be ready to give the gift to the church at Jerusalem, they kind of lost steam on it. Has that ever happened to you that you lose steam on your giving? Uh, that, that's what happened in, in the Corinthian church. And as a result, there was a decline in the uh, giving. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians writes to encourage them once again to do so. Uh, this is the opportunity to give that requires both generosity and accountability. Now in verse 5, we move to this idea of planning and time and opportunities and relationships. Christians who believe in the resurrection as most important make the most of our planning right here and now in this life, of our time here and now in this life, of our opportunities here and now in this life, in our relationships here and now in this life. Look at verse 5 on planning. Paul says, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia. I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you, even spend the winter Macedonia's north of Corinth by quite a bit. He says, maybe I'll stay with you. Maybe I'll spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever it is I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing. I want to be able to spend some time with you. Uh, you see, Paul doesn't view eternity as a reason to fail to plan right now. Just because, for example, the team that's going to New York City or to Tanzania uh, is going to have their plans change doesn't mean that they shouldn't plan. We should always plan and then be able to work the uh, changes to the plan accordingly. And that's how Paul is acting here. He's, he knows that every plan of his is not set in stone, but planning is necessary. In fact, the plan that Paul gives here in verses 5 through 7 for himself, he doesn't actually do, at least not immediately. And that actually causes some problems for the Corinthians because he goes there, but he's there for just a short time because there's one guy who gets really mad at Paul. And as a result, Paul leaves and Paul has to send Titus twice, once with a letter that we don't have, the second time with the letter of 2 Corinthians in order to get everything patched up between the Corinthians and Paul. 
before he can finally follow through with this plan. In fact, one of the accusations that they made was, you planned to do such and so, this, in verses 5 through 7, and then you didn't do it. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains why his plans had to change. Paul wants to spend his time where it can be most effective, but he's aware of the obstacles that can change his plans. You know, there's things like illness, travel issues, sudden changes of heart. The fact that the Corinthians had changed their heart toward Paul caused him to change his plans about seeing them. His brief, painful visit changed the plan. It required two more letters and two visits from Titus to resolve. But in the end, when we read Acts 20, verses 1 through 3, Paul ended up doing the plan that's marked out here in verses 5 to 7. It just took some time to get there. Notice the opportunities that Paul describes in verses 8 and 9. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. He doesn't let his plans hinder the possibility of seizing opportunity. He's going to stay at Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective work is open for him. Notice also that even though there is a a wide door for effective work, he's also not looking at everything through rose-colored glasses. He knows that his work at Ephesus is going to lead to trouble. Maybe he even already anticipates the kind of thing that actually happened at Ephesus where there was this big riot that broke out, right? He says there are many adversaries. Paul seizes opportunities for the wide door of the gospel, fully recognizing the opposition that he may face. Then in verses 10 and 11, we see Paul's relational life come into play. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease. Don't intimidate Timothy, even though he might have some hard things to say to you. Because he's doing the same work that I am. He's doing the work of the Lord. They say, he says to them, don't despise him. Don't let anyone hold him in contempt. All the evidence of the New Testament suggests that Timothy was a man who was a very sensitive fellow. That he was very caring, but he also was very sensitive. And as a result... People could kind of bull rush him, kind of run over him. That's why Paul instructs Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example, right? Here, he says, let nobody despise Timothy. Timothy comes and he's kind of this sensitive fellow and they just kind of over him, you know? (laughs) He's saying, don't do that to this guy. Maybe Timothy was a less forceful personality And it was tempting to run over him. But Paul says, send him on his way in shalom, in peace, so he can get back to me, because I'm expecting him along with the brothers. How did Paul's plans turn out? Well, some of them happened, some didn't. Paul goes against his plan, makes the quick trip to Corinth. That visit goes so badly due to one guy in the church 
that Paul refuses to return. He sends Titus back twice, writes two more letters to the Corinthians, and then finally can continue on with his plan. This has to do with relationships. Speaking of relationships, those of you who've been a part of our study in 1 Corinthians know that at Corinth there were party factions. Some groups were saying, I'm for Paul, and others were saying, I'm for Apollos, and others were saying, I'm for Peter, and others were being really high-minded and spiritual and saying, I'm for Jesus. You know? <laughs> um, And the fact was that there were all these factions in the church, but look at how Paul views Apollos in verse 12. Because they're asking about him. Well, when's Apollos coming? Paul says, now concerning Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you. Paul's not for himself. Paul is for the Lord and and the Lord's kingdom. He's He's not feeling in any sense that Apollos is a rival. He says, I urged him to go to you. Perhaps this urgency to send Apollos or for Apollos to go was to display to the Corinthians the harmony between Paul and Apollos. But the fact is that Apollos did not go. Verse 12, it says, but it was not at all his will to come now. Now the phrase his will could be it was not at all God's will that he came right then. It could be that it was just Apollos' desire. It was not at all Apollos' will to come now. We aren't sure of that. Either Apollos was unwilling or it wasn't God's will. Maybe it's both. Doubtless, Apollos is as sensitive to church politics as Paul was, and he didn't want to go because he didn't want to be part of that division and strife that was happening at Corinth. You see, Paul and Apollos are not rivals to one another. And we see that very clearly in the way Paul introduces this in verse 12. Now concerning our brother, Apollos. That's a relationship, a a, a description of real unity of oneness. So, let's think about some practical applications. Thinking first about giving. There are regular needs of a church, and there are special offerings for particular needs. What we've been talking about is the special offering for a particular need. But there are some principles we've learned about all giving. First, giving should be planned. We should always think about planning our giving, because if we don't plan to give, we will, in the end, fail to give. Each person should give by setting aside according to God's prospering. And then the church plans and stores up for appropriate times and places of use. There's no hurried, disorganized, emotional tug gimmickry, no emphasis of pressure and emotion, but rather communication. No false promises. You'll notice here that there are no fundraisers, raffles, or lotteries. And one of the ways that we seek to apply these kinds of principles here is that we don't do fundraisers or raffles or those kinds of things, but rather the idea is that the Lord's work is supported by the free will gifts of God's people. 
whether you give, I hope you give regularly, but whether you give regularly every Sunday or not, I hope that you will think about your giving every Sunday. That as you gather, you are thinking about the resurrection of the Lord and that your body too will be raised at the last day and that your giving is a celebration of the resurrection, first of Christ and then one day of yourself. There should be integrity and safety in giving because integrity and safety in giving enable the freedom of giving. Think about it. If every time we took up an offering, the offering got stolen, how, many, how much would we give? Well, the answer would be not that much, right? So we have safety and security measures in place. Or if there was someone who was taking money out of the offering, there was a lack of accountability and integrity, it would stop the freedom of giving. And so we have accounting and safety measures in place to enable us to give freely to the Lord's work. Now let's think about some applications related to planning and time and opportunities and how we engage our relationships. We should make our plans with eternity in view. The fact that we're going to live forever should impact how we plan right now. And for most of us, I think that means that we should take more risks than we do. Secondly, in terms of our time, our time on this earth is limited and only what is done for Christ will last. And we can see in the life of the Apostle Paul that he really lived and believed that. We should keep in mind that obstacles will change our plans and how we spend our time, but those changes should not convince us that we should never plan or that we shouldn't use our time well. There are some people that say, well, if it's all going to change anyway, why should I even try? Why should I plan if it's just going to be changed? No, no, no. It's always better to plan and to plan the use of our time so that we can adjust rather than constantly living on a disorganized uh, fly, as it were. And then in terms of relationships... We should always seek to build others up. Do you see how Paul wanted to build up Timothy? A man who is of sensitive conscience, perhaps less forceful personality, but Paul wanted everybody to not despise him, but send him on his way in shalom, in peace. And do you notice that Paul never looked upon a fellow minister of the gospel as a rival? He never looked at Apollos as a rival. They were partners. Even though they had perhaps a different agenda for how they were going to spend their time, different plans, different opportunities, all of that, different relationships. But Paul didn't say, because Apollos has different plans than I do, because Apollos has a different use of his time than I do, because Apollos has different relationships than I do, I'm his rival, or in some way we are opposed to one another. No, no, no. Paul saw that a fellow worker in the gospel is never a rival. Last thing I want to say. All of this, all of this is a follow-up to the gospel. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried 
and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. As a result, we can think about our generosity, about our time, about our opportunities, about our planning, about our relationships through the lens of the glorious gospel of Christ. Have you met Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you've never personally asked him to forgive you of your sin, all the plans, all the giving, all the opportunities, all the time mean nothing. Only through that personal relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ can any of those things matter. So I urge you today, if you have not done so, to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. You took my place. I was dead in my sins. You have paid the debt. I trust you now with my life. Give me the means to live both here and for all of eternity in step with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the privilege today of thinking about these practical matters. We'd ask, Lord, that you would help those who don't, do not know Jesus to put their faith and hope in him, and those of us who do, to be able to uh, give, to plan, to organize, to develop relationships, to spend our time in ways that really reflect the fact that we belong to our Savior Jesus, that reflect just how much we want to give him our everything. And Lord, to you be all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.